This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 9th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, it's exciting. We get to talk about more housing bills. The other housing bills hath come. It is uh, the Yimby's wet dream of weeks <laughs> here in British Columbia as the Social Democratic... That's quite the uh, show title you came up with right The <laughs> Social Democratic Party has advanced the, what is it, seven provinces run by conservatives in terms of deregulating housing in two weeks. <laughs> it's weird times, for sure. But uh, yeah, no, somehow the NDP beat all the uh, free market parties to this one. Patreon.com slash politicos. Let's just get right into it. First off, following up on last week's multiplex bill that we talked about, I think I forgot to, or at least I was too naive to give it um, the criticism that was going to come, or at least predict the criticism that was going to come, I should say, not necessarily justify it. But there was kind of two obvious angles that we saw come out. First was the mayors like Mike Hurley in Burnaby complaining that it, you know, strips their power away because it does. It says you don't get to have unlimited control over single-family zoning anymore. They have to start at this level. Uh, we got more to talk about zoning in a minute. Uh, that complaint, I don't think either of us have much time for, given the crisis around us. Yeah, if you, if you want to keep the powers, you actually need to use them for something. The other complaint is a much more nuanced one that relates to the quirky and arguably horribly corrupt system of funding cities from development that we have developed in British Columbia over the past few decades, which is that basically, because we don't pre-zone things, which last week's bill will overrule, uh, we sell off zoning. So we have a- chicken egg backwards on that. We don't pre-zone because we can sell off zoning. Yeah, yeah. So we have a thing we invented in Vancouver, and it's spread across the province called Community Amenity Contributions. It basically says, all right, you want to put a very big building on this lot that you own. It says in the community plan you should have something like that. That's all fine and good, but it's not zoned for that. Council will consider a rezoning, and staff will recommend it if you agree to pay some amount that we work out together behind closed doors. And planners have a certain basis that they use on, you know, based on what other developers have paid, what they consider the market rate, and uh, some magic math based on what they feel like they need to cover off the expenses that come with growth that we want to put on newcomers rather than existing residents because newcomers don't vote, can't. Yeah. So, like, a lot of this is basically enabled because rezonings are considered discretionary so it's you know not really like a tax that the cities don't have the power to levy because it's you know a optional thing that people are just engaging with and hey if you want to do it this is kind of the informal negotiated bar you have to cover but in practice because uh, cities get to extract this money. They've made it basically impossible to build anything without going through this process, and it acts as a de facto tats and break on development. Yeah, the staff in the city of Vancouver, when they were asked to study the idea of bringing in a land value capture tax, and this is a tax that would reflect the increase in... Uh, property value, land value that comes from the city building things out like amenities, like transit that make property more valuable. And staff came back and said, well, our 
system of shaking down developers to allow them to build things on the property they own uh, already does that. So we don't need that. That's not how land value caps is supposed to work. And it's a bit of a telling on yourself situation. Yeah, they didn't right put there. it so crassly, but that that is how the system works. And it's amazing because it's the kind of system that can perfectly attract criticism from every side of the political spectrum because it's not transparent and it's basically just favors establishment corporate, you know, the largest corporations can manage it much better than like a random new startup developer or someone doing some small scale developing who doesn't know how to navigate the system is far more likely to get yeah, fleeced. Like, just, yeah, just think about it. Like if you're, you know, random homeowner who, yeah, you know, maybe your neighbors move out and you want to like just combine the two lots and build, I don't know, yeah, four plats or something, you know, just a couple extra things together and produce your plan value. You would like never be able to navigate the system in any practical way. And so, it, yeah, basically favors the big developers who can actually put resources into dealing with this. Yeah, system. so it impedes the free market, and so conservatives can justifiably hate it. And it, like, is wildly open to corruption and favoring uh, big business, so the left can hate it. And <laughs> well, Not only does it, like, disrupt the free market, but it's one of the... It does so in, like, the most annoying to conservatives way of like having a bunch of planners or you know bureaucrats and planners basically substitute their own judgments for stuff in a completely non-transparent way and everything like it's if you were to ask like kind of the libertarian types just the worst possible way to do something they would probably describe this system and so we haven't abolished it but by forcing municipalities to pre-zone to their uh, official community plans, which have to be set to their housing needs, we are basically taking for 20, for 20 years. years, we are basically taking away a lot of the automatic appliant, applying this to uh, land. If developers want to come forward and propose something bigger than that, they can still go through this process. But cities said, well, where are we going to make up our money? And rather than just... I mean, this province should have just told them raise property taxes that's why you have that power to do so but uh wasn't quite what we got well it was going to be put on david eby's lap if everyone's property tax went up by 10 or 20 percent or more because of this and so i mean would it go up that much so like the thing is yeah you'd get some amount going up but also it is the case that you would be getting a lot more property to tax on this so some of it will come out in the wash. That property doesn't exist yet, though. So it's... Yes, it's, but neither does the demand for the amenities exist either. What we've come up with instead, though, are amenity cost charges. And the approach here is to try to rectify the solution and try to balance both priorities. These are going to be upfront, transparent fees. So your developers, whether they are the homeowner you talked about or, you know... I was going to say West Bank, but they might no longer exist, or uh, Concord Pacific, whatever, your giant big companies, BD Development. They can all just look up the table that has been approved by council, and they know what they will have to pay for a development to go in in a new lot. That fee is going to have to be set by the local government. They're going to have to use the official community plan and determine what kind of amenities are going to go in. They have to figure out how much money they need to collect for those amenities, and that has to be split between new and existing users, so it can't be put all on a future uh, use. I guess the, the example where it would all go on the future use is a community where they're developing a new suburb where no one lives, and they're like, we need money to fund the parks that are going in there. The people who are going to use the parks are going to move in there in the future, so we'll put it on the developments, that kind of thing. But if they're putting in a yeah, school well, like, in an existing neighborhood, then that gets split between the new and existing residents. Yeah, which makes sense. That has to be proportioned accordingly, too, which is good. It means you can't basically offload all of the costs onto the uh, the newcomers. So on that front, yeah, it's great that they've actually codified that in so uh, governments can't basically use this to do an end run around that. Uh, they then have to have some consultations on the charges and the amenities to go in. Uh, the consultations for the amenities presumably would fit within the OCP 
And then they just have to pass a bylaw that specifies the charges, which is public information then. Uh, the law will also allow municipalities to waive ACCs on affordable rental housing. They can already do that for uh, CACs and the other fees they charge. Um, and so there's a way that municipalities can incentivize if they choose affordable rental. Um, and then the final part of this bill just lets the municipalities use their other fees, uh, development cost charges and development cost levies. Uh, it lets them also use those on fire, police, and solid waste stations, which they currently can't, I guess. Uh, and they can also use it for highways when there's certain rules met. Nerds can look up the legislation. Basically, it has to be like approved by the province. Yeah. So basically, I guess these were oversights on stuff. Like, it makes no sense. You couldn't, you know, put some of the costs on of this stuff to say build a new police station or fire station, but. Uh, I guess the existing legislation wasn't there for that. So, yeah, allowing capital investment in various uh, services that uh, municipalities provide just makes a lot of sense on this stuff. Uh, one other thing, this and the other bills we'll talk about, is, is they also uh, have a provision in there that basically lets the province make regulations related to any of this stuff. So uh, I'm pretty sure that is a signal to all the municipalities of a hey we're watching you if you don't do this the right way we can always just come in and do it ourselves and we won't have to go back to uh legislation to do that we can just uh do it by order and council or maybe even a minister's order in ontario they brought in the strong mayor powers here they're bringing in the strong minister of housing powers well, it's also like just very common in BC legislation to write in a bunch of lieutenant governor and councils will do whatever. So let's talk about the other bill that dropped. Was this just today? It feels like, yeah. Was today. Or no, yesterday. Okay. The Transit-Oriented Development Areas Bill, the make all of the sky trains into tower fields bill. Oh, tower clusters. Areas. Fields is the wrong word. Forests. We've just, with a single bill, upzoned every uh, SkyTrain and bus hub <laughs> in the province. They have... Well, yeah, almost. We're, it's undetermined exactly. This one which. also requires the uh, municipalities to update all their bylaws and stuff accordingly. So, you know, it's not like tomorrow you could break ground on a giant tower beside a, a transit station. But nevertheless, like this is a huge change once the actual uh, rules get rolled out on this in the uh, the next less than a year or so when this all comes together. Seven months. So this one, let's break it down. It specifies three types of areas, Metro Vancouver, uh, Victoria, Kelowna, and other medium-sized municipalities, and then just other qualifying areas. They say they're going to look at 30 municipalities across the province and about 100 of these areas to designate. So those type one areas in Metro Vancouver are either going to be rapid transit stations, so your SkyTrain stations, or bus exchanges. And bus exchanges is a little bit undefined, but I think it's going to be like rapid bus spots or so where different buses meet, right? If you actually look at the bill itself, uh, the way it's written, it lets the municipality prescribe... Uh, basically any station, bus exchange, or even bus stop. So the backgrounder they put out didn't mention this, but uh, yeah, in theory, they could just pick a random bus stop and say, yep, yeah, you're in a transit area, and you're all upzoned around it. So around a SkyTrain station, you have an 800-meter circle uh, where higher and higher buildings get to be built. In the 200-meter kind of circle centered on the SkyTrain station, you can build up to 20 stories at a density of 5 FAR. Scott, what, what is an FAR, and why does that actually matter? Right. Uh, it's also known as FSR in the city of Vancouver itself. Basically, it is the ratio of how much floor space is in the building to the size of the lot it sits on. Uh, so for 20 stories, roughly that works out to uh, one quarter of the uh, lot would be covered by this. And there's like a bunch of weird carve outs of, you know, this type of use, like, you know, elevators might not count or something, but you know, you, uh, 
roughly speaking, it's yeah, your ratio of lot size to uh, or floor space to lot size on that, and a little hard to wrap your head around sometimes just what that actually looks like in practice. Um, Yale Town, I think, is generally in like the five to six range, plus or minus additional half on that. So you know, in theory, this is like Yale Town size buildings in and around. Uh, the transit stations. Right. So as we move away from our SkyTrain station in the 200 to 400 meter range, you can go up to 12 stories and slightly less dense of 4.0. And in that 400 to 800 meter range, which actually goes to about, uh, I, you know, my neighbor's house is within that and I am not, uh, you can go up to eight stories. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of SkyTrain stations are within like 1.6K of each other. So it gets to be the point where you can have basically abutting areas here on that. And uh I believe the uh, four to 800 meters represents like the bulk of the actual areas yeah. covered with these. And um yeah, update stories, three FSR or FAR. Uh, I am two in the city of Vancouver weeds on that one. I keep saying FSR. Um, so yeah, mid-rise buildings on that what about bus stops or bus exchanges there the range only goes out to 400 the 200 meter circles up to 12 stories 4.0 far and that 200 to 400 uh up to eight stories and three fsr far whatever uh outside metro van uh you're looking at six and ten stories based on how close you are to the bus exchange and those other qualifying areas and four and six story towers low rises i guess yes so that first set of other areas those are kind of your mid-sized yeah. municipalities your colonas your victorias and the like yeah so we're not going to see towers going up in penticton uh but this might upzone a couple core spots in those kind of towns to allow some low-rise apartment buildings that might not be allowed right now so housing everywhere kind of bill yeah and this is fairly significant. California did a thing a while back around trying to get some density around transit station. I think theirs capped out at like eight stories. I want to say eight stories and whatnot. So like this is a significant change. Like 20 stories is one of the most expansive uh, transit-oriented development minimum zoning things uh a higher level government has put in place for cities. Yeah, and it's worth noting anywhere. municipalities can go above and beyond this. Municipalities can still say you could, if they're Burnaby, put up 50, 60 story towers around certain SkyTrain stations, which they do right now. This just sets the yeah, floor. Which I, and I wish this applied basically that to the city of Vancouver. Just, it is ridiculous that you know, random SkyTrain stations in Bur not not even hubs, just random SkyTrain stations in Burnaby uh, get more density and taller buildings than Commercial and Broadway, which is what, the second busiest transit station in Western Canada and a major hub. That one's less than six FSR, like get the exact number of stories somewhere in like the twenty-five story range on those. I think the tallest one might even be up to thirty, but less than sits which is ridiculous and just like i wanted to say every time with uh last week's housing bill but wait there's more uh this one <laughs> uh also removes parking minimums and i think i forgot to say that applied in last week's bill i forget exactly how it applied it might have just been everywhere but there was like a removal of parking minimums and what that basically means is that there is no requirement that when you're building a tower for 400 units that you put in 600 parking stalls because you assume every adult in that building will need a car. Yeah, and I'm, I'll have not looked in several years at what the cost of a underground parking stall is, but it is high five, low six figures per stall on that. So that adds up very quickly. Like every condo, gets to be $100,000 more expensive to build if you have to include parking on it. And all of these are supposed to be within walking distance of a SkyTrain, so you don't really need as many cars. The developers can still put parking in, 
but the cities can't mandate that there be parking besides uh, some spots for people with disabilities and commercial zones can still have parking minimums. But the units themselves, uh, it's up to market demand how much parking they include. This is great. And yeah, like you started off mentioning that uh, it's a little uh, off brand for what you'd expect from the NDP, but very, very welcome on this. Uh, I also just need climate one beyond just the emissions related cars themselves. Uh, digging out multiple stories and filling it in with concrete uh, has a fairly significant environmental impact on that. So not having to do that is also a pretty big win. All these developers could have always been putting their parking lots on second and third floors. It has been done. Uh, also not without its no, problems. No, yeah, it's, it's its own challenge. But I'm just thinking of a downtown or Coquitlam City Center has one or two of those kind of situations where they, yeah, they're Yeah, they, they also made for terrible streetscapes. Oh, yeah. Like, it's bad enough when, you, you know, the sidewalks interrupted frequently for uh, driveways, but... Uh, also, just having all the front of your buildings being parkades is just way worse. Yeah, what's what's really funny about the parking minimums bit is I watched a BC Conservative video this week where um, John Rustad and Bruce Banman squeezed together into their phone and recorded on the windiest day outside in Victoria. So it sounded like crap and looked awkward because they were almost hugging, which like if they want to hug, I have no issue with that it just they didn't look comfortable doing it but they were complaining about the zero emission vehicle bill where the targets are being upped by the ndp and they're saying this is a war on cars type bill that the government is that the bc ndp are quote anti-car um because they won't let you choose what kind of car you can buy in the future you, we've always had regulations on what kind of car you can buy so you've never gotten a hundred percent free choice of car but what's funny now is like this this is actually anti-car this is like saying we are envisioning a future where people don't own cars where well, most I mean, <laughs> or a yeah, lot maybe 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 not it, it's just more saying we don't think we're the people to decide how much uh parking is needed we'll leave it up to the market like like you said there's no cap on the amount of parking that can be built and Developers are free to build as much as they want, but they also don't have to oversupply uh, parking, which is definitely a thing that can happen. Um, a couple of years back, uh, the city of Vancouver did a survey of the parking downtown and found that uh, turns out there's a whole bunch more than was actually being used. Uh, so it's very possible that just badly drafted regulations, and um, to be clear on this, the science of figuring out how much parking is needed at like a very high level is um crap it's there is no real rigor to any of the like recommendations on like oh this is how many parking spots this kind of use should have um so yeah it's just led to a whole bunch of bad regulations across north america leading to a massive oversupply of parking which is just incredibly costly and has a whole bunch of other uh, downsides to go with it so uh yeah this is good but it's it's very much more of a free market uh reform rather than a uh regulatory overreach i mean one of the things that i think has been interesting i don't have the numbers in front of me but as far as i know the number of cars that are registered in metro vancouver has been shockingly flat for several years despite massive growth in people and that is a really good sign for making a livable city because we don't have a ton of space to put more roads and even if we did we know that adding more roads doesn't always solve traffic in fact it rarely does yeah, there's a geometry problem in vancouver that literally cannot be solved and with more cars and so facilitating this longer mode shift towards active transit you know focusing housing around transit and building out more transit we're seeing a bit of that with the broadway line to arbutus that we talked about and the surrey to langley extension we're going to need a lot more transport 2050 with translink has talked about that and so 
all of this is starting to work together and it's so good to see it feels so good scott <laughs> yeah yeah no this is great it is gonna yeah put a little more stress on the transit system uh in particular the thing that uh immediately came to mind is the candlelight which is already struggling to do with peak demand and uh right now the plan that's along much of it is like yes yeah, sit stories or townhouses for most of it and we just with a stroke of a pen pretty much have actually i've done the math but i would guess at least doubled if not tripled the amount of housing that can be built around that uh that line and amazingly, it didn't take us 14 years to do it the way it did the city of Vancouver. So it's going to be a, a big change on there and one that uh, Translate is certainly going to have to grapple with because there's just not enough capacity on that line to uh, deal with a massive build out. But it's a good problem to have. Too much transit use. So they have predicted over the next 10 years these changes will bring another 100,000 units to the province. So that's in two weeks, if their predictions are accurate, they've created 230,000 more houses in BC, which is halfway there, not quite a quarter of the way there. Yeah, well, that's uh, 10 years for what they're predicting. Uh, the CMHC by 2030, so seven years, uh, they say we need 610 above the uh, business as usual case. So, yeah, as amazing as this plus the uh, other ones from the previous bill is, there is just so much further to go on all of this. From Nevertheless, like this is also, as far as I know, like the most expansive uh, provincial or state zoning preemption bill anywhere in North America and perhaps the and i think the anglosphere as well like it, it's it's big and it's uh gonna kind of set the bar for every other place from the homes that are being built to the homes that don't exist one other bill came out this week i think there might have been more but one other that i noticed was another miscellaneous statutes amendment act i think this is like the fourth one of this session um this one is it even the uh the transit bill was like a statutes amendment at bracket transportation or something, transit-oriented development or something. They really like to do their uh, statute amendments. The the names of bills in BC are actually pretty boring. The, yeah, Miscellaneous Statutes Amendment Act number 4, 2023. Um, usually these bills don't do too much. They, you know, clean up typos or add, in this case, the fact that the Water Users Community Act, Drainage Ditch and Dike Act uh, groups can do electronic meetings. Cool. That's good. Should have been done. Uh, that kind of stuff. But this one has a more substantive amendment, which is to put into legislation a definition of what constitutes a shelter. And the reason that matters, or what constitutes a reasonably available alternative shelter, that matters because there have been a couple court cases in BC now where municipalities have tried to get an injunction to evict a um, camp of unhoused people, people who've set up tents and are living there. And in some cases, those individuals have gone to court and beaten the injunction, pointing out that the city has offered them no reasonably available alternative shelter, in meaning you can't just evict people because that violates their right to security of the person. You're saying get off this land and you say, well, where can I go? I will die. And so the courts have said, you know, cities find them somewhere to go and then you can evict them. And the province looked at the multiple course cases coming out on this and judges being what they are, don't always agree on what constitutes a reasonably available alternative shelter. And so they've just put it into law to, uh, quote, inform a court's analysis of injunction applications. I mean, it made sense. Like the common law has a bunch of benefits, but the uh, uncertainty and conflicting case law is definitely not one of them. So being able to just say, yeah, there needs to be a minimum standard of shelter that's available. This is what it is. And uh, go from there. So yeah, made made sense to me that they would uh, 
put this in place. Yeah, so what they're defining it as as somewhere where an individual may stay overnight and have access either at or nearby the shelter to a bathroom, a shower, and be offered a free meal, which on first read is like a reasonable starting place. This will still undoubtedly get challenged because you can't just write a law that undermines charter rights unless you include the notwithstanding clause, but they didn't, and that would be wild if they put it in here in a missed statutes amendment act. Um, but if someone says, okay, you have offered me a place where I can use a bathroom, a shower, and have a meal, but I am worried I will be discriminated against there because I'm trans and it's run by an evangelical church that is known to be anti-trans. In that case, you might still have a case for the Supreme Court to prevent them from evicting you from your tent. So I think this is a a start and not necessarily a cruel-hearted bill, but one that may have overlooked some of the challenges that could still come up. Granted, they couldn't imagine every single challenge, and I just created a hypothetical, and there's undoubtedly other hypotheticals that could be made, but it's a sticky one, at least. Uh, Rob Shaw characterized it in the Orca as a law to make it easier for municipalities to clear homeless encampments. And that's definitely the way you could criticize it. I mean, some people would actually see that as a benefit, but uh, yeah, at the very least, it uh, brings it uh, into the case where it uh, adds clarity on that. Yeah, and that's what the government's I think saying. Yeah. So. Because, uh, like, a. Can we or can't we? It's out. It's up in the air every time. It's just like not a good way to run any sort of policy. We should just build more shelters. But uh, one thing that is clear now is no one should be on Twitter. And if you are, don't like anything ever, especially if it includes <laughs> I, a Nazi. Yeah, at, at the very least. Yeah, avoid the Nazi stuff. What happened at the Green Party today, Scott? Yeah, so the Dream Party is now uh, down a deputy leader as uh, their deputy leader, Dr. Sanjiv. Sanjiv Gandhi, uh, who was appointed, I believe, last year, um, announced a few months ago that he was going to be challenging Adrian Ditz for the uh, was it Vancouver Kingsway. Is that the writing? Um, one. Uh, yeah, he has gotten himself in a bit of uh, social media hot water after uh, liking a tweet that uh, compared Dr. Bonnie Henry to uh, the Nazi doctor Joseph Mengele. So the tweet itself was like a retweet of someone writing a letter to the editor about COVID and both like that original tweet and the quote tweet that he liked just like complained about the provincial lack of action and taking COVID seriously. Then in the hashtags, and that one person uh, who quote tweeted it tagged Sanjiv Gandhi in there, knowing that he's following these kind of conversations. And in the hashtags, they put something like uh, Henry is Angela or something referring that way. And I believe it um, was one of these things where you like stitched it in the middle of the name as uh right. I don't, I don't, I blank on the term, but you know the thing where you do portmanteau, like the nickname, sort of. Yeah, in there, um, and it was. Oh, it wasn't a hashtag, but it was preceded. Yeah, uh, yeah. This letter should be read on the campaign trail by Dr. Gandhi when he runs against Adrian Ditz in the Horde VC NDP by hashtag Queen Bonnie and quote Mangala Henry was what the uh, the tweet that was liked was. Just not great. Like, nobody should be comparing uh, a public health officer just doing their job to one of the most uh, depraved individuals of the last century. Like, when I read the tweet that was liked, it took me a... I didn't see it initially, right? Because my eyes first went to the letter... And read that, and I was like, oh, this letter's fine, whatever. Like, you can disagree with it, but it's not like an offensive letter. There's nothing Nazi in it. And then, like, finally I came back and saw that. Because I guess when I read tweets, I just, like, skim the hashtags anyway. And so, like, he maybe had an offense there, but it's like, 
And he did come out and apologize for that. Someone else also dug up that he liked a different tweet that called uh, Adrian Dix a eugenicist. And I'm like, I've seen that kind of language around and like... It's not good language. Like, like here's here's what also it's gets the sort me. of thing that people do post all the time on Twitter, yeah. and it's you know the sort of thing that if you are seeking public office, you should be better than, and if you can't be better than it, you probably shouldn't be running. Uh, I mean, also just like as a doctor, you probably shouldn't be doing. He's that not either. making like, the language. Is also it's kind of just like every aspect of the story is pretty dumb to me yeah like because the, the one thing i do kind of wonder is um like a lot of professional association i have no idea about the um medical colleges on this one but a lot of professional associations in their ethics uh have a provision in the code of ethics about not disparaging colleagues like you know fair criticism of work is of course a uh exception or allowed but like you can't be just running around calling your uh, fellow professionals Nazis or anything. And I do kind of wonder if like that may have also overstepped the bounds on that too. Like, it, it, at the very least, just incredibly unprofessional. Yeah, like it's definitely worse. It would have been obviously worse if he'd said it, but it's just like weird. Oh, he liked a tweet and it's like, what? what is the cost of that? And... I you know should he have put likes and retweets don't equal endorsements in his bio and would that have absolved him the other thing that like Probably no not. obviously not the other thing that just like gets me here is there are, and I know it we know it happens but there are like people who spend their days going through the liked tweets of other figures and it's like that's loser behavior too <laughs> I feel like like every, everything in here's dumb the premier called this behavior quote reprehensible it's like just stay out of it just you don't need to pile on the greens at this point like but it's fun to pile on the greens honestly on this case it's like entirely fair to to go uh to criticize them on this one i think we'll link to his apology again i have i have so many strong feelings on this because this man operated on my child's heart twice and she wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. So I'm not going to pretend I'm impartial. <laughs> but it's also like... Fair. Um, he did He did unlike the tweets, uh, he says in his letter. Uh, this has like old man or someone who's not... He's not even that old, but someone who's like not that deeply used to Twitter vibes. Like, I don't think he tweeted much before he was on... Maybe. I don't know. Like, it, I don't know how much he's been on Twitter before or, after, or before this, but... Uh... I don't know, like, the vibe I get more of this is, like, someone who's, like, gotten pretty deep into um, a particular niche on Twitter that is um, very critical of the uh, government and the public health officer for not doing more on COVID. That has sometimes um, gone overboard in how it approaches that issue, and this just strikes me as a case not of being too unfamiliar or naive about twitter it is more of a case of the dangers of getting trapped in a bubble on twitter we should just have a public inquiry into the handling of covid in every province and nationally as because you know if i haven't followed it closely but it sounds like the one they're doing in england is very funny uh not in a good way but in a morbid oh my god these people are ghouls way granted they had boris johnson in charge at the time um, but we, st- we still need more than just like the operational reviews they did. But speaking of people who are too far into their own bubble, uh, Democracy Watch's uh, effort to rule the 2020 BC election unconstitutional uh, hit hit a hit a snag again. They first lost at the Supreme Court of BC, and now the Court of Appeal has uh, laughed at them as well. I don't I, that might be too harsh, but. Yeah, courts generally don't laugh. Like, if you've got to the point where a judge is even, like, mildly sarcastic in their writing, like, you have screwed up royally on that. Nevertheless, anyone who, like, reads or comments on this stuff is laughing at this. I mean, technically, they did get a little bit of a win in here. The 
appeal they had to the Court of Appeal um, did find that the lower chamber judge was incorrect, quote, in concluding that the Constitution Act had converted the lieutenant governor's prerogative power of dissolution into a statutory power. Um, nevertheless, it didn't affect his interpretation. Like very nitpicky. Yeah. I don't, like, I don't I'm, even I'm sure know what there's... that means without thinking about it. Um, but yeah, ultimately, uh, the judge correctly held that the Constitution Act, this is the Constitution of BC, uh, which actually exists, uh, imposes no justiciable limit on the premier's ability to advise. Basically, the premier can have an election whenever they want. Full stop. Yes, there is a fixed election date law, but it's more of a... Uh, Upper limit rather than a lower limit. An advisory. <laughs> so yeah, that's not really that surprising. Uh, I don't expect the Supreme Court of Canada will hear an appeal if they try to appeal this no, unanimous I, I, decision. As, yeah, was, I don't lose the court decision. Unanimous. As far as I know, there's like no competing uh, precedent anywhere in Canada on this one. So there's not even a reason to take it up because governments get to go to the LG and uh, call for an election whenever they want. This is about as firmly established constitutional principle as can be in Canada. The key is to lobby the uh, lieutenant governors and governor general to churn down spurious claims like the 2008 prorogation crisis. That's not going to happen either. Let's move on to premiers. Uh, they met this week in Halifax and came together to wag their fist at Sean Fraser and say, hey, if you're giving out money, we want ours first. Yeah, so they basically uh, came together and said, you know what, we actually don't think it's great for uh, cities and the feds to be dealing with directly. We want to insert ourselves in between that. And uh, a couple of provinces are now even musing about putting legislation that would prohibit their cities from accepting any deals with the feds directly. Uh basically trying to uh, kneecap the power of the purse that the federal government has. Yeah, this is all coming against the background of Sean Fraser, the federal housing minister, running around doling out housing accelerator fund money to municipalities that agree to upzone according to various criteria and increased density uh, that the federal government has set out. Um, Which incidentally, does, does this new uh, provincial law just automatically mean every BC municipality's entitled to uh the housing accelerator money i would think so once they pass the zoning laws that they have to <laughs> it seems I mean, I like there's it. an implementate there's an application process yeah. like maybe that's yeah i think there's an application be- process there might be some requirements around affordable housing to include that so it might be like one or two other edge cases in addition to the uh minimum densities and things that they're looking for but yeah david eby did all the pr- mayors in this province a favor by giving them by making them do what the federal government has also been offering uh which which does make this you know statement from the premiers kind of interesting i think you have to read things like this as what they are right they're consensus political documents you have premiers like daniel smith and scott moe who are more hostile to the federal government than david eby at this point or even like doug ford has a weird ability to get along with people on any side of the aisle at times um, when he's in a good mood. And so some of those premiers, I think, are more begrudging this one-by-one negotiation system that the federal government is doing, and they want their cut. And the other premiers are like, I mean, technically, we're in charge of municipalities, so they're not wrong we're not going to put up the fight here because we're happy to see it, but you know we'll sign on to the statement, but we're also not going to do anything. And so seeing which provinces actually move forward with this threat to ban cities from accepting federal money, which is just wildly stupid, uh, will be the thing to watch. Also not unprecedented. I think there have been talks in Calgary or in Alberta about like the province like trying to stop the LRT construction in Calgary by just like taking their money away. It's like some petty bullshit happens there all the time. It's like the dumbest version possible of federalism right here. Mm-hmm. The 
The letter also included a couple other statements that weren't as fun or interesting, though. Like they like housing, they like healthcare. Give the provinces more money, and they'll just they'll just do it their own way. The provinces, as we mentioned, though, are upset about the approach the federal government has taken to the carbon tax exemption for home heating oil. Uh, federally, the political parties have come to the table to try to pitch different ways to approach this. The conservatives brought forward a motion to extend the exemption given to home heating oil to all home heating fuels. That one was actually joined by the NDP, although the Liberals and Bloc Québécois, and I believe the Greens probably voted to reject that pitch, so it didn't uh, take. And more recently, and these both came in this past week, the NDP put forward its own motion to take the GST off home heating fuels, and that one also failed. Uh, They only got votes from the Greens in this case, and they got the votes of the Greens as they had two other points to their motion, uh, one which was to make heat pumps free for all low- and middle-income Canadians, regardless of heat source, and to finance those two costs by doing an excess profit tax on big oil and gas. A very good, a very a very true NDP motion, other than the, like, take GST off home heating. Yeah, it sounds like, in some ways, a very NDP motion. To be, yeah, you're yeah, right. Uh, Jack mean, Layton pitched that in 2010. Yeah. No, this is like pure NDPism right here, right, right down to the fact that it went nowhere in the House. Just like their motion for a citizen's assembly on proportional representation is going to go. I wish them well, but yeah, indeed. <laughs> damn. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like the only thing interesting on these two stories is the fact that the NDP uh, joined in uh, Pierre Polyev's uh, motion on home heating. One thing I noticed in one of the statements from a New Democrat on that was they flagged that the Conservatives didn't say in their motion that climate change is fake or that the carbon tax sucks. And so that really feels like a case of... willful blindness on the uh, NDP's part. There have definitely been motions I mean, the Conservatives have written that include language to that effect, though, much more explicitly. Yeah, like the... Um, <laughs> so they didn't fully poison it. I mean, I think most of the Conservatives uh, agree that climate change is happening. There's... I think most of the disagreement ends up being on, on how to deal with it. But, like, the carbon tax sucks part? Yeah, that is, like, through and through with the party and like the NDP pretending the the conservatives don't think that way because it wasn't like explicitly put in the motion is a little funny. You can always find an excuse to vote for something or against something uh, on any ideological ground if you strain yourself hard enough. Uh, And sometimes you have to outsource that straining, which is what uh, the Department of Natural Resources did to try to figure out how to save money including how to save money on specifically on yeah so they paid uh six hundred and seventy thousand dollars to kpmg for advice on how to cut their consulting costs which is just amazing and hilarious Uh, this comes as ndp mp gord johns had asked uh in a committee for all departments to provide details on any contracts with third-party management firms that had been asked to assist in identifying spending cuts. Only the Department of Natural Resources came back. Every other department had not hired consultants for part of this exercise. Natural Resources is a weird one to get the consultants in. Out of like, I don't know, it just feels random on that front. But yeah, $670,000. Well, technically $669,650, Scott. Let's not round them up that extra fifty. Or let's not round them up that extra three hundred and fifty dollars. Um, the Global Mail has a nice little graph in its uh, article on this, showing the expenditures on consultancies over you know the past twenty five years or whatever, going back to two thousand eight. And numbers are actually fairly flat until twenty seventeen, when they really just start jumping from like ten to fifteen billion in a few years. Don't know what happened in twenty fifteen. I have a sneaking suspicion about there was uh, one big change in Ottawa around that time that may have something to do with it. And uh, speaking of contracts, another story came out this week on just contracts that I had to just put in here at the end. 
the Public Health Association of Canada's 2022-2023 uh, account, someone went through, I think from the National Post, and dug down into the line about write-offs uh, and found a specific write-off for, quote, an unfilled contract by a vendor. And, like, departments are going to have write-offs. Like, they're very large organizations. They spend money all over the place. Sometimes you just eat a loss. Uh, this loss was $150 million. That's a big write-off. And the reporters tried to ask what what the hell that was. And the reply they got from the department was, due to a confidentiality agreement with the contractor, specific details of the contract, including the vendor name and financial information, cannot be disclosed. You would think if they didn't fulfill the contract, the contract doesn't matter. <laughs> like, they didn't keep up their yeah, end of the point, bucket. Like, <laughs> like, they... Yeah, like at that point, you're a breach of contract. Like, it's... I don't know, maybe it's the case that they don't want, like, a countersuit or something on it. Like, that's the only thing I can think of as why that would... Like, we're not lawyers. The contract probably says, even if this isn't fulfilled, you can't disclose it. But yeah, that's a bad that's contract to sign. And also, horrible. Uh, I do hope someone in the House of Commons asks about this, because they should be able to get more information than a journalist due to privilege. But what a mess. Like, they kind of frame this within the amount of money flowing out during COVID. And it likely was some kind of program like that, where they were just trying to get money out the door as fast as they could to keep things running. And so there is some grace earned on that side of, like, mistakes will be made, you know. But you still need transparency for them and an understanding of what happened. This goes back to my point about an inquiry. I wasn't joking on that. Um, at the very least... Tell us where the $150 million went, because this feels like it should be a bigger scandal than an $8 glass of orange juice. Yeah, but it's like easy to understand $8 for an orange juice. $150 million of, with a contract dispute? It's a little more difficult to get people to really latch on to. Stop it there. Yeah. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.